Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast, episode 205, I should say. And please, please put your hands together to welcome me for my new official co-host, Petko Stoyanov. Petko, what, are you excited? You're like officially on, on the podcast now, and I know our listeners are going to have so many questions. So I, I want to like take a little time up top here to get to know you a little bit better. Oh, I am excited. I'm looking forward to this, Rachel. I mean, you and I have so much fun just talking about <laughs> cybersecurity in general and, yes. uh, you know, our prior co-hosts. So I'm looking forward to continuing the energy that this podcast has had and, and you know, interviewing so many interesting guests so we can continue to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's start at the top, though, Petco, because we were just laughing and, you know, ha- Petco is such an original name. And... Uh, <laughs> And I'm I'm curious, I'm sure our listeners are too. How how did you come, how did your parents come up with the name Petco? What's what's the history there? Uh, so I know most people are thinking the pet store, so I have to put that out there first. <laughs> I am not named after the pet store, but the name Petco itself is um originally a, a very common Bulgarian name. So I'm originally from Bulgaria that's in Europe. And if you trace Petco, it's actually tied back to Petros, which is in a way Peter, and I'm older than Peter, you could argue. Oh. Wow. Okay. That's cool. So Bulgaria, is that where your family's from and kind of what brought you to the U.S.? Oh, well, that's an interesting story. So I came to the U.S. Oh my God, a lot, back in the mid-80s, I would say. Mm-hmm. I was a refugee with my parents who came to the U.S. Um, by way of Italy. So interestingly, my parents were both uh, math professors. They taught mathematics and they had an opportunity to leave the country to go teach other areas of nice. the world in terms of education, and I was lucky enough that they were able to bring me along. But instead of going to those countries, they said, let's stop in Italy, leave our suitcases, and then just go directly to the local police and file for asylum and refugee status. And uh, we did that in Rome um, back in the, oh my God, mid-80s at this point. And what was interesting is normally... My par- now, my parents spoke seven or eight languages apiece. So wow. it, French, Russian, German, Portuguese, you know, they spoke it fluently. And so when they submitted the paperwork, they realized, oh. well, if I put in Bulgarian, there's probably a lot of refugees from Bulgaria. So let's just do it in French, German, and maybe even Portuguese. So that way there's always a translator on the other side. <laughs> and, and by doing that, we were actually in a, they ended up putting us in a refugee camp initially. And we were there, there were some people there for six, seven years. We were fortunate enough that we were there for six months and then we came to the U.S. So in some ways they socially engineered the process. (laughs) Well, you do what you have to do to get it done, right? It's because that's, six years is a long time to be in a refugee camp. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, definitely. So we were fortunate enough to be there six months, came to the U.S., um, you know, typical refugee process. So you get sponsored by a family temporarily mm-hmm. for about a couple months. And then afterwards, you're kind of on your own. So my parents right. found jobs in the U.S. and uh, I ended up getting all my formal education in the U.S. Started almost all my education in the U.S., I would say, at this point. And eventually got into technology. And I, I actually, funny enough, like math was very intu- intuitive to me. So I ended up, right. I went from majoring in mathematics to IT because I couldn't decide as, you know, most young 
18, 19 year olds and 20 year olds. So I ended up working in software development where I was doing things like websites to then building software for Raytheon. And I ended up majoring in system engineering operations research, which is kind of the form of original data science, applying Mm -hmm. math to solve problems, yet at a system level. Mm -hmm. So for for a couple of years, I worked at Raytheon, um, building UAVs, designing, think about the system problem. How do we solve it? Sometimes we tend to over-optimize one piece, not realizing that that creates a backlog somewhere else. And then I spent about 10 to 15 years in the U.S. government, working across government, within government, and working with the private sector. And then found myself leaving the government and working at McAfee for a couple of years um, with their public sector team and then Forcepoint as well. I mean, I, what's funny is I feel like I came into cyber a little bit differently. I mean, I know we've had so many guests on this uh, podcast where there's some people that did medieval and now they're doing cyber. <laughs> I came in from mathematics, trying to figure out how do I build weapon systems or airplanes to saying, wait, we should protect these airplanes. We should protect these UAVs. And next, you know, I'm doing cyber on an airplane or a data center in the sky and then saying, well, we should probably do cybersecurity everywhere, not just on airplanes. Right. Go figure. So you've sat on both sides then. You've sat on the government side and the private sector side. I mean, what would you say are the biggest differences that that you've seen between the two? I think the government is always looking to solve a problem and then Mm -hmm. try and figure out how, how to get funding for it. I would say industry starts with the funding in mind and figuring out what can we do with this funding. Right. It's a little bit more of an open-ended answer on the government side. So mm-hmm. the government, I would say, looks at risk holistically. And at the same time as an industry, you're like, well, we have this much. What can I do with it? You start off with that and you get really creative on both sides. Sometimes you come up with these crazy big ideas in the government and on the industry, you start saying, let's focus in on it, this because that's our biggest risk. Right. And I, I've got a saying that, you know, you don't create a diamond without pressure. And sometimes depending on how you look at the pressure, you know, you do create diamonds. Exactly. It's, you know, it's, that's an interesting metaphor. Um, do you think um, all this pressure over the years has gotten us to this point today where we're truly seeing a lot of um, action happening at the top, right? You know, Biden executive order, um, you know, SEC has new new regulations coming online. I mean, just uh, there's new like railroad regulations for security. It's just really interesting in the last couple of years how much how much seems to be activated. And you, do you think that we're finally hitting that point where that pressure is is making that diamond because we gotta gotta address it. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put that metaphor into cyber, isn't it? Um, it's when I look at the industry in terms of. The amount of, you know, for years, I would say there's so much we've invested in cyber at the government level and every government's done this and they would build their capabilities of almost like a, a just in case, you know, just right. like the nuclear side of it, just in case. But what ends up happening is if one thing gets out, that trickles out from the government to the crime groups, to everyone else. So we're seeing reuse. And I think that cycle, it used to be shorter. It used to be right. a long cycle. Now it's a shorter cycle, meaning that. You know, it would take time, but now we're moving at cyber speed that where someone creates right. an exploit on a Tuesday or someone creates a patch on Tuesday, we're exploiting on Tuesday before it would right. be, you know, exploit on Wednesday. Now we're doing the same day. So I, I think what we're seeing is the speed of which some of this pressure or these tools we've developed over the years are just coming out a lot faster than they have in right. the past. And, and I think because of that, I mean, one thing that's exciting about the industry is we have to we keep hearing the, the concept of shifting left, but shifting left is really about 
not just shifting left, but how do we shift from left to right very quickly? Right. You know, we, we put security in, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're applying the right, you know, from code development to all the way to deployment in as quickly as possible. It should not take months to deploy. It should be, you know, weeks or hours. Right. Agreed. Um, and I think this is a nice segue, too, because we were talking a little bit earlier about the global cybersecurity landscape today. And there was a Washington Post article that quoted Dmitry Alperovich, who's, you know, been a, a big Big, uh, we're big fans of his, and he's been on the podcast a few times. Uh, he suggests that we may be entering, quote, one of the most dangerous times that we've had in the history of the cyber domain, quote. Um, you know, not only tensions with Russia and China, but it's it's so much more than that, right, Pecco? I mean, how can you just peg it to two entities? No, absolutely. I, I you know, I, I love Dimitri. It's been awesome to have him on the podcast, and we'll definitely look forward to having more. One area that I struggle with is just the attribution. Right. You know, being able to tell... Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it an outsider or an insider pretending to be an outsider and vice versa or an outsider pretending to be an insider? It gets harder and harder to tell between between insider threat, outsider threat. I mean, it's a lot easier to say, oh, this came from China. Or was it China inside of this university in the U.S.? Or was it a kid in the U.S. in that university? It, It gets harder and harder over time. And the speed that we can do that with, it's, you know, we're not moving at cyber speed there. The investigations take a long time. But if we look at... Some of the your question around who's the biggest risk or who's you know to the to the U.S. I almost feel like you're asking the question of who's the smartest, who's the most right. focused. But if we look at some of the targeted attacks we've seen over the years, if I had to rank them top ten, or I mean, we can start talking about like WannaCry that was attributed right. to North Korea eventually, not Petya was attributed to Russia. You know, Stuxnet was attributed to certain nations. Uh, you have the OPM hack that was believed to be China. You have Sony, if you recall, that was believed to be North Korea. You have the Bangladesh Bank that was, so they stole $80 million. That was also North Korea. So, like, I start thinking about all of those focuses. You know, there's right. not one nation. It's just that we've got so many that is it the nation, is it smart individuals in that nation that are doing it? It gets yeah. harder and harder to tell. But I think as cybersecurity professionals, We've got, we focus, spend so much time focusing on what's happening outside that we really need to say, what's happening in my culture, in my team, right. you know, in my network that I can control? Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, I mean, coming back to attribution, do we only say it's attributed to X country because we saw something in the code that's like a, a hallmark signature of a country? Doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not, um, you know, imitating them. Right to, I guess, deflect attribution. But you know, how do how do we get ahead of that to where we actually know who's doing what? Um, do people raise their hands, and that's the only way we're ever going to know truly who's doing what? Well, even if they raise their hands, they'll probably just want to take credit, right? Right. So, but if let's, but I have seen like the amount of code reuse. Just like developers will go to GitHub, they'll download something. We see the same thing in the cyber community industry and the cyber right. crime groups. You know, that that team that created it for X nation state, he's like, well, I can also sell it to these other guys. Right. Let me just resell it again. And mm-hmm. if I resell it, I now get paid two or three times more versus just paid once. I think there's a lot of reuse that we need to be aware of. And that's what makes this so dangerous is mm-hmm. when we see an attack in one part of the world, we should definitely be aware of how those attacks came you know, how they got in, what they stole, just to just from a threat analysis standpoint or threat awareness. But knowing it was one country or another helps. But eventually, you're going to get to a state where, I think I remember seeing Bank of Lloyds came out and said, if it's a nation state, 
we consider that an act of war. We're not going to cover you for cyber insurance. Right. So sometimes saying it's a country might, you know, actually backfire. Right. But being aware of it, how it happened, it, were you being diligent in your cybersecurity practice? That's what we should be focusing on. It's kind of interesting, too, that, um, you know, you, you keep reading all every time that there's a new new hack or, or new incident. They always they always keep coming back in the recommendation just have good cyber hygiene. <laughs> like, you know, like it just seems that that gets you like, you know, what, 90, 95% of the way there. Like, but what's wait. hygiene? Rachel, what's well, hygiene? I mean, I, I guess the generic answer would be patches, right? Making sure you're updating your software and patching and, you know, being diligent on keeping up with all of that. Is, is that not a correct answer? I, I, I mean, I think patching is part of it, but like having a gold image or a baseline security standard you're applying to, to your right. OSs, your servers, your desktops, are you monitoring all those? So I can patch all day long, but I have no idea what's happening. Right. You know, it's kind of, like, it's almost like IOT. You know, I, I buy these IOT devices. I put them inside my network. I don't have really visibility on them. I don't no. have visibility on the code. I'm not running anything on them. I might have some network traffic. Most likely 90, 95% of it's encrypted. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned IoT, though, because we were just uh, looking at some articles before we got on the call here, and uh, it looks like the U.S. is looking at security labeling, like nutrition labels for IoT devices, but uh, the U.S. isn't the first one here. I was surprised to see that Singapore has kind of been leading this charge for a while. Why Singapore? Ooh, why Singapore? I mean, you could argue it's geographical location, what we mm -hmm. could assume, right? I can't, I can't tell you why Singapore itself, but I know Singapore, I think it was just a, a year or two ago, two years ago, they started doing this and they partnered up with Germany and Finland on this. And if you buy an IoT device, and, and they're going to let, which is really good about this, is they're going to let consumers kind of choose do they want security or not? So right. imagine going to your local technology retailer. If you do buy there or even Amazon and you would say, I have this, let's use cameras as an example. It's certified as level two. Now, oh, just to go over the levels, Singapore's got level one through level four, level one and two are kind of self-certification, three and four are full-blown pen testing, making sure you haven't done any exploits in them. It's it's pretty impressive what they've done, but it's it, it does feel like nutritional labels. But at the same time, you know, I, I think, you know, nutritional labels... How many of us actually read them? I mean, I do. Rachel, not. you're health conscious. You probably read them all day long. But. I, I actually don't. I just, you know, I go, I go with brands that I know are, you know, have a certain reputation, and then I just stick with that. Um, but no, I, I should look at <laughs> nutrition labels. But, but what's funny is I, I don't think nutritional labels simplify as much as like even the Singapore. They don't tell the this. whole story either, necessarily, yeah. right? They don't. And, and I think it's all about knowing what I, having spent so much time with certifications and others, it's all about how you define the scope of that certification or that right. self-certification. Like level one is, do you have some baseline security requirements? That's what Singapore is doing. Level two is, are you applying life cycle requirements like patching mm -hmm. like others? And then like level three, which you need a third party to validate is having full do vulnerability analysis and software binary analysis. And then level four is full blown pen testing. And when you start looking through those, if someone said this is, if you went to the store and said this is a level two, this is a level four, right? And next thing you're like, what's the price difference? Right. And if the difference is maybe ten percent. You're like, oh, I'll just go with the higher security for ten percent. Exactly. But if the price is double, you might say, well, I don't know if that's what is. What am I really getting? I've heard of this brand before. Let me just go with them. 
So right. I, I, I'm really excited for what is coming down the path for, I guess, security labels or cybersecurity labels for consumer devices, because consumers will get to now influence is security matter to them. Right. And right. hopefully our listeners, the answer is yes. <laughs> hopefully. And it looks like the U.S., um, it, this could roll out, I think, under voluntary, right? Mm -hmm. So IoT companies that um, with products that are deemed kind of the highly vulnerable, like a router, um, like, a, like a home Nest camera, let's say, then it's voluntary for them to start putting these labels together. And, and there's not a label, I think, like it doesn't exist yet, right? I mean, there's a template that they're working on. I think like 22 different entities have contributed to some thoughts on what this could look like. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting how fluid this is, and they're talking about wanting to roll it out next year. <laughs> yeah, what I, what I think is really so they make it voluntary in the spring of next year, mm -hmm. 2023. My understanding of it is it's going to have not just security focus, meaning when was the last updates, right? Kind of access control do you have on it? But what are the data privacies? practices right. on are, you know are there things that the data is collecting on you where it's being stored i think this could be huge not just for cyber for data privacy in general mm. no that's that's a good point because there's a lot more happening on that front that we have to absolutely keep an eye on um you know, I, I did want to say one more thing about singapore though as well because we keep hearing so much about healthcare attacks, right? Healthcare ransomware. And Singapore, I guess because they've kind of been ahead of the curve on this, they have expanded their security labeling to include, you know, start to include healthcare products, which I think is actually kind of critical, maybe more so than IoT devices, which were, I guess a lot of those are IoT devices, but what, what's your perspective there? Because healthcare, woof, uh, we need to do a lot there. Yeah, the healthcare industry is interesting because when you, let's say your blood pressure or your robotic arm that's in the, the operating room, do you think the healthcare industry buys this? Do you think the hospital buys them? In a lot of cases, they're actually leasing them. Right. They're leasing them just because they want to get updates, they want to get everything. But when you're leasing something, you know, you can't, you're limited by how many updates you can do it. You can't really install something on it. And, but can you, some of the security that was applied to healthcare, well, originally when we designed the healthcare system, we never assumed to be connected to the network or the internet. We right. assumed to be one computer connected to this robot that's doing surgery. Right. Well, for convenience, they said, well, we need to have it remotely accessible in case we, power goes down or something else. So all right. of a sudden, now the practices they use for the protocols and have become, you know, they're not your standard practice. It might be something as dangerous as, oh, let's just ping it. And next, you know, the arm opens up. Right. <laughs> you know, or you <laughs> ping it and blood pressure starts pump, blood starts pumping. I think, you know, security's gotten, that was years ago, of course. It's not like that anymore. Right. I, I hope not. But we've, got, if you think about the IoT or security mindset of just healthcare technology, I guess I'd love to see this in healthcare and others because that's such a major attack vector that it is such a difficult problem to solve because right. of those third-party risks right there that we talked about, the, the assets that you don't own that in your network. I mean, Rachel, I think you and I were talking about earlier, like how many devices we own in our house that we're like, right. well, do we know what's on it? Do we know what it's doing? Yeah. And we just plugged it in, put it behind our firewall and said, okay, now I trust you. Right. Uh, and I think a lot, I, I look forward to like these labels to start influence our buying decision because that's, that's how we're going to make security mainstream. That's how we make data privacy mainstream because the consumer is going to be aware of, oh, this does X, you know. 
Yeah, it'll it'll be eye opening too, particularly if you know the labels start coming out and you're looking at what you currently own <laughs> and where where it falls on that one to four scale as well. It, it could inspire a lot of people to make a lot of changes in their in their homes. I have a friend of mine who refuses to buy things ex- unless they're ma- if they're made in certain countries. So mm, he goes okay. out of his way to go open source, out of his way to say email the manufacturer, say where is this motor made in. We're this little motor for my desk made in before he even buys a desk. And it's wow. interesting because he'll pay two to three times more just because he wants to make sure it's sure. not just I protect it from a security standpoint, but it's been sourced accordingly. Right. Because he wants to spend, make sure his money is going to countries and nations that he supports. And, you know, that's yeah. a personal choice. Absolutely. It's not always the cheapest, you know. No, no, it isn't. Um, you know, it's, it's now that we're talking about it, I, I kind of – I'm laughing because, you know, my house, I have the Arlo security cameras. I've got the Furbo connected to my network, you know, that's watching my dog. Wait, what's a Furbo? So Furbo. (laughs) I'm picturing some type of stuffed animal for some reason. Right. No, it's, it's, it's a camera. It's a, it's a, a camera with two way audio. So when I'm away from the house, I can see what my dogs are doing, but I can also talk to them. You know, like, hey, get out of the trash can <laughs> or, you know, or I can send them treats. Uh, I like to watch it when I'm driving home, which is completely not safe. I admit that looking at my camera while I'm driving. But I love to see kind of at what point they realize that I'm coming down the street, um, you know, but that's highly vulnerable. But yet I, I don't feel comfortable having like a voice assistant like an Alexa in the house because heaven forbid that thing's always listening to me. But yet I'll have all these other things that have the audio, <laughs> that have the camera. But- but not the Alexa. I just now I'm thinking that just sounds kind of hilarious, actually. <laughs> so you trust Arlo and this thing called Furbo or Furby, whatever it is, Furbo, more than Furbo, Alexa. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I know. It, now that I say it out loud, it it sounds a little crazy, actually. <laughs> you know what? Whatever. I mean, I'm just thinking about your dogs, how they're trying to figure. out. I mean, this thing. You know, gives them treats. I, I guarantee. I, mean, I would not be surprised if they went in there and said, "Let me just get the food out of it completely." Absolutely. And they hacked your uh, Furbo, Furby. Don't call it Furby for some reason. Yeah, I like Furby. <laughs> they have. I have. I have two dachshunds and an Australian Shepherd, and the dachshunds have figured out how to. I think you know, one stands up on the other, uh, and they help each other access the Furbo and knock it over for the treats. Um, wait, wait, wait. One stands on top of the other dog. Yes, yes. That's the only thing I can I can think of how they would do it. There's no way otherwise for them to get in on this. We need table, a video of this. I exact I need another Furbo so I can watch what they're doing with or, the Furbo. Or just use another yes. Arlo on the other or side. Or another to Arlo. Watch. Exactly. <laughs> Rachel, As this I has been the most interesting thing is about how your dogs are really hacking this IoT device in, in your house to get treats out of it. See, there's motivation. That's that's the thing, right? Hackers are motivated people, and they're they're going after you know some kind of uh, gold mine for them. So there you go. Anyone could be a hacker. I think is what we're finding. <laughs> <laughs> any, not anyone, but anything. <laughs> anything, exactly, exactly. Oh my goodness. Um, hey, so Pico, I know we're kind of coming up on time, but uh, I would love for us to end our conversation with two final questions. So the first one I think you had suggested, which I really, really liked, was a top five list in priority order. So if you were to give our listeners a top five list, um, perhaps for how should they assess 
security labels as they start coming online? What would be your your kind of top five suggestions as folks start thinking about these? Security labels as they come online. Interesting. You're putting me on the spot on this. I am. I'm sorry. But you're so good on your feet. You you know, I I almost want to say we've got to wait and see what the labels say, right? Yep. Um, And I'll, I'll use the example of like organic. You know, when you see something that's organic, you're like, is it really organic? I mean, and then you... And one of the examples I think was that you have organic that's vegetarian organic. And I'm like, but I'm like, it's chickens. They should be eating worms. Yet it's right. vegetarian organic. We overthink the – so I'd love to see what the that's labels really say themselves. Point. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to hold off making any kind of okay. list on okay. the organic – or not organic, but any type of labeling. Because we've got to see what happens with it um, and how much – how many of them actually in spring of 2023 actually come out and say that they're doing security Right. One question I do get over and over again and uh, during my travels, which I might flip it a little bit here for you, is what should a consumer be doing, you know, mm, at home right. to protect themselves? Because they, I mean, I was just recently in Australia and on the airplane, someone's asked me, well, all these attacks that we're seeing with, and there were some major attacks in, in Australia recently that there, it was just ch- changes the landscape for them. Mm-hmm. What has become conversation on airplanes and they're asking, well, what should we do, be doing as consumers? And my first question is, well, you know, you can't control the security of some of these companies you, you do, right. but there's things you could do to ensure you're protected. I mean, right. and I'll ask the question of, well, how, do you do, how much is, how much, do you do any kind of password reuse? Do you ah, reuse the same yes. password across all your, everyone? Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, almost all of us have at some point, you know, we increment a number or a letter or something out of password just to keep it simple. But the number one thing that we need to be doing is honestly just, driving for a unique password for every single service that we have and things like password managers um, are just great tools you know things right. like LastPass and other solutions like that are so easy to use because they'll if they'll identify that if there's a breach in your email and notify you should go change your password so right. in addition to just making unique passwords they'll notify you and then the second thing is we definitely need to be i mean in some cases the two-factor we should be implementing yes. some type of two-factor beyond just email and most of us, you know, are being forced to do it by the banks and others. But if there's an opportunity where you're not being forced, you should always say yes. So that way you can say you've applied best practices. You've done your due diligence. And those are so simple things. And now I know some friends of mine who take that st- that two-factor and password right. managers that are unique to a- another degree. They'll create a separate email address for a single service. Wow. Wow. So they'll, t- they'll use something like Gmail. And in Gmail, you can do a plus notation. Right. Where you can say your name, your email, and then you have the word plus Netflix. So only Netflix uses that. And if you see that email address somewhere else, hey, maybe there was a breach. Not saying Netflix had a breach, but right. But they do that per service. So one might be for your internet provider. One might be, so they do this on purpose. See if that email is being shared. Genius! How did I not know about this? We'll have a training session after the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Well, I'm, as as Eric used to uh, observe, I I am reluctantly uh, getting on the two factor train. Um, some some uh, vendors make you do it, uh, like USAA, I believe they they force me into it, which I'm glad they did, you know, because it it is important to have. But man, sometimes it's just that extra step, you know. You just want to do what you want to do. So okay, then final question, bonus round. What book or books are you reading right now? Let me look at my Kindle. Give me a second. Sure. My phone. So I'll volunteer that uh, I just uh, 
got a book on neuroscience and retraining your brain, which I'm very excited to read. Uh, I think his name is Dr. Amen, A-M-E-N. So if, if anyone's heard of him, uh, of course, I discovered him on TikTok. As everyone knows, I'm new to TikTok and uh, I get a really interesting selection of things in my my feed. You can only uh, imagine with TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, I don't have TikTok videos. or Facebook or anything. It's a great way to lose a lot of time for sure on TikTok. I don't I don't really do Facebook so much, but that TikTok is really it figures you out pretty quickly and then just serves it up. And, uh, I, 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 I will start off by saying I'm looking at my Kindle and I have a, one of the ones I recently was reading about taxes. That sounds boring, I know. But. Taxes? Like <laughs> yes. T-A-X-E-S. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, living in the United States, you start realizing taxes are something you need to focus in and understand. And so when I'm not reading books on taxes, I am reading things like, you know, James Clear on Atomic Habits. And just things about, you know, your health and everything. I'm obsessed with my health, so I tend to focus in on a lot of that. So I've got to, without being specific on the books, I will say I've got some that are regarding health, age, and just, uh, you know, owning the day and things like that and you know, nice. owning your life. Yeah, it's, I think there's a lot of people that are, like, thinking that way today too, right? I mean, it's just taking a step back and, you know, how do, how do we live healthier, happier you know, all those things. And it's, it's wonderful. I think you were telling me a really great practice that you're into and kind of just, uh, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but I do read a lot about the benefits of like meditation and yoga and even just a few minutes a day, you know, kind of part of this neuroscience book I'm reading, but even just five minutes can do so much for, you know, kind of your thinking on that day. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's if if you think of a I think what was it? I think of the book Seven Habits. There's this concept of coffee has about sharpening the saw, and mm-hmm. if you do that every morning, you're kind of sharpening your saw, your focus. And I spend I try, most days I try to spend my morning honestly just I wake up before the kids and the wife and everything. I'll go downstairs in the basement and I'll do some stretching, some yoga. It sounds very simple, but for some reason that just gets me in the right mindset. Mm-hmm. Where the rest of the day is just clearer and more focused versus oh my gosh, I got three hundred emails I have to respond yes. to. You just get into the state of, let me just take care of one at a time. It, it's it's a calming more than anything else. I've noticed that on, I'm, I've been, I tend to do about four to five days out of the week. Uh, weekends are a little harder. Right. But for days where I do do it, I notice the next day or two is so much easier. Yeah. And for days I don't, I start to kind of, I got to get back into it because I can feel the difference. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing? You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, Rachel, I think I, it was all because of COVID, honestly. With all of us being right. at home constantly. I used to use my commute to work as my focus time. Yes, yes. And now that's gone. So I have to now find my own habits and my own atomic habits that make small changes throughout life. That's that's a really good point. Um, Because, you know, the commute, I don't know, you're on the East Coast, so it probably was quite a commute to to get to where you were going. But, um, yeah, that 30 minutes in the car can make a lot of difference just to kind of set your mindset for the day, for sure. While you're not road raging, at least I say that from my perspective. <laughs> uh, mine's 30 to 45 minutes, and I just treat it as a calm morning, you know. Nice. Okay, yeah. well, come drive in Austin for your morning commute, and maybe not so calm, but yeah. I'm, I'm in the D.C. area. Do I need to say how, how interesting our traffic is? I mean, between the construction and the roads constantly changing, you seriously have to pay attention because signs will shift overnight. Yeah, that's crazy. I hate driving in that area because of that reason. 
My, my GPS is never accurate. But anyway, well, I am excited for the road ahead on the podcast. I think we're going to have so much fun, Petco, and uh, I'm excited for all the guests that we have coming up in the next few weeks. We've got a great lineup of folks, and I think our listeners are going to really enjoy enjoy these conversations. So welcome. Welcome to the podcast, officially. Thank you, Rachel. Looking forward to it. And uh, with that, um, thank you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. So to all of our listeners out there, thanks again for joining us this week. And if you haven't yet, just tip to the subscription button and smash, smash, smash it so you can get a fresh episode every Tuesday in your email inbox. So until next time, everybody, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 